revolution, a man was running down the street after a mom, and his mom was moving quickly into danger, and a spectator said, stop. He yelled at him, stop. He said, you're running into danger. Do not follow that mob. And the man turned around and looked at him and said, I have to. I'm their leader. Being a leader is never easy. But leaders care about the right thing at the right time, the right way. Every leader brings unique skills and abilities to the challenges that he or she faces. And being a leader, leader means that you may trait that you may already possess to help you as you move into an opportunity that God may be placing in your direction. And God may place before us countless opportunities, but the issue is this. We choose to ignore those opportunities. We choose to ignore those chances to serve our God. Yet, as I read through Scripture, and I know those of you who study Scripture as well, the Bible is filled with individuals who met the challenge, who met the opportunity, who God was used to lead or prepare to lead or are already more leading for God to use them for the task at hand and for God to allow them to make history. What is interesting is that each opportunity, each one responded with the opportunity that God had presented them. We see these individuals in Scripture. Abraham cared and rescued Lot from Sodom. Abraham cared about his nephew, so he did what was necessary to rescue him. Moses cared and delivered the Israelites from Egypt. David cared and brought the nation and kingdom back to the Lord. Esther cared and risked her life to save a nation from genocide. Paul cared and took the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Jesus cared and paid the ultimate price for my sins and your sins. So the question I want you to think about this morning as we're beginning this journey through the book of Nehemiah, the question is this, what is the level of care in your life? What is the level of care in your life? Another way we can rephrase this is simply put, how much do you care? Because this is the issue that we see with Nehemiah. What you're going to learn about this man is he's a person who cared. He cared about the conditions of the past and the needs of the present. He cared about the hopes for the future. He cared about his heritage, his ancestral city, and the glory of his God. He cared enough to notice an opportunity where others would likely have seen an impossibility. He cared enough to make himself available to God for a mighty task. The question this morning as we begin our study is simply this. Does anybody care? Does anybody care? Because what you're going to learn this morning is you're going to see a man who cared. A man who couldn't be in the place where he needed, where he needed to be at the moment, but he cared enough to do something about it. My prayer this morning as we work through this first chapter of Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Nehemiah chapter 1. As you're turning there, 
Think about this question. Does anybody care? It's because Nehemiah had the heart of a servant. It's because he saw the need. He could make this question and ask this question himself. So this morning, as we get into this study, the first part of this, this time together is going to be a little bit of a history lesson. Because I want you to see how we got to this point in Scripture. How did we get to the predicament that faces Nehemiah? One of the things you're going to see this morning is the predicament of the people of God. It's the predicament of the people of God. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, or in some translation they used the word Susa, the citadel. That Hernai, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Within this predicament, I want you to see two things in these first three verses this morning. First, I want you to see the context of the report concerning the people of God. The context of the report. So the book of Nehemiah begins by answering a question that anybody would want answered if you were reading a historical record. We need to know who wrote this record. We learned there was a man named Nehemiah. The name Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. God comforts. That's what Nehemiah's name means. But did you notice in verse 2, here's where it gets a little interesting. Scripture says that it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Now there's some things I want you to note here. We know the time and we know how long this has been going on. The historical record tells us it's the month of Kislev. Kislev on the Jewish calendar covered the months of November and December. That is important to pay attention to. Then it's during the months of November and December for using our calendar that he hears this announcement. But there's also something else I want to point out in Scripture this morning. It says the 20th year. Now there's some debate about what that phrase actually means. Is it how long Nehemiah had been serving the king as the cupbearer? Or was it how long King Artaxerxes had been serving as the king? We don't know the answer. The assumption is the second. That when Nehemiah says the 20th year, he's talking of the 20th year of the king of Babylon. But as we read through this, we know that Nehemiah has been greeted by his brother and men from Judah to where he is currently living and serving. And he hears a report about the situation back in Judah. That is the context of what we're reading this morning. But I also want you to see the content of the report. Look at the content. Notice what he says in verse 3. Listen to the report again. 
He says the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Two words describe the people back in Jerusalem. Did you catch that in your scriptures? It says that they are in great distress. The word distress in Hebrew means danger, disaster, calamity, misery. It's basically describing the condition of a detrimental life. They are in shambles. They are in danger. They are in misery. That is the phrase we see that word, great distress. What they're dealing with back in Jerusalem is not easy. They're having a hard time with it. But also notice what his brother said to him. Yes, they are in great distress, but the word also there we read is reproach. The word reproach in the Hebrew depicts shame, disgrace, scorn, insult, contempt, and threat. So the people have done wrong, they're in shame, but they're also in danger. So the question needs to be asked from our perspective, from our point of view, how did Jerusalem get this way? What? I want to encourage you to go ahead and take that nice little ribbon bookmark you've got in your Bible and put it, put it in Nehemiah. We'll get back there eventually. But for right now, take your copy of God's Word. Turn over a few books to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 4. And I want to show you what Ezekiel said what happened as a result to Judah's sin and the Lord's judgment. How did we get into this predicament? Read in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 5, I said chapter 4, and I mean chapter 5. Because if you read chapter 4, you're not going to get the right word of what's happening. And that's another story for another time. When sermon prep goes wrong, that was chapter 4. But chapter 5, in Ezekiel, look at verses 13 through 15. How did we get to the position and the condition that we see the walls in? Ezekiel chapter 5, starting in verse 13, this is the Lord speaking. Thus shall my anger be sent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal, when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson and astonishment to the nations that are all around you that I execute judgment among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. The people had stopped listening to God. The people had been in captivity before they were taken away. God spoke these words about the people. So we see their condition. The nations know the fact that God has executed judgment on his people. Did you see that in these verses from Ezekiel? God has executed his wrath and his fury upon his people and all the nations know. But it doesn't stop there. Because you don't turn back there yet. But in Nehemiah, it says there's great distress and reproach. But then we read that Jerusalem, that the walls are broken down. And the gates are burned with fire. Well, how did we get to that point? 
Take again your copy of God's Word and turn over to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. As you're turning there, I always encourage you, sometimes Saturday evening, I'll post a picture of my Bible and tell you that it's ready. If you saw the picture last night, you know we're doing Bible work for just a moment. But in 2 Kings, I want you to see how the walls became in the condition they are in at the moment. 2 Kings chapter 25, starting in verse 8. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, verse 9. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans came with the captain of the guard and broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around him. So we know what happened. We know that a foreign army came in, led by the captain of the king, and broke the walls down, burned down the houses of the great. Now, 140 years later, Nehemiah hears what the condition is. He hears what has happened. He knows that a remnant has gone back home, but the walls are still down. And Nehemiah is disturbed by this report. He is concerned about this report. How do we know this? Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to show you in our time this morning the prayer for the people of God. What you're going to see in these remaining verses 4 through 11 is the prayer for the people of God. Because Nehemiah was a man of prayer. This prayer that we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 is the longest of nine prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who prayed. Nehemiah is an example of a believer who prays without ceasing. And at times, if you read through the book of Nehemiah, it's almost as if he's having a conversation with God. He's just talking to him. He's telling him what's going on in his life, in the life of those he cares about. It is so natural for Nehemiah to go to God in prayer because of what he hears about Jerusalem. You see, it's natural for him, but for some of us, when we get in dire situations, when we have no idea what's going to take place, we tend to make this statement. I guess all we can do is pray. For Nehemiah, it wasn't a last resort. It was the first thing. It was the priority for him. It was the first option. And in your study guide this morning, I made this statement. It's a good reminder for us as we come into a new year. When prayer becomes the first option for a person, it is an indication that he or she is truly walking with and depending on God in all things. Let me read that again. When prayer is the first priority, not the second, not the third, not the last. When prayer is the first priority, becomes the first option, it is an indication that somebody is walking with God and depending on God in all things. Prayer is a sign of humility. Prayer is telling God, I can't do it by myself. I'm 
I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. It's only through your leading and through your guiding that I get through the situation that I am dealing with. So it's no wonder that we see God use Nehemiah the way he did. It's a reminder of what Scripture says that God opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we see this prayer for the people of God. Notice next the characteristics of Nehemiah's prayer. Notice the characteristics of Nehemiah's prayer. And this is when we get into the nitty-gritty of what Nehemiah prays about. I want you to see this morning that Nehemiah's response is emotional. Nehemiah's response is emotional. Look with me at verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 4. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of Notice Nehemiah's response in Scripture. The people are in great distress and reproach. The walls have been destroyed. And it's Nehemiah's response to weep over what's taking place. To sit down and weep. And notice what Scripture says here. It says, he sat down, he weeped, and he mourned. The response from Nehemiah is that of a godly man who cares not only about the reputation of the people of God, he cares about God's reputation as well. His reaction is not because of culture. It's not because of tradition. He is truly grieved because of the condition of the people being in great distress and being in reproach and because of the city being broken down. And here is Nehemiah sympathizing with the misery that his people are experiencing. Remember, he's not in Jerusalem. He's serving in a foreign land, and here's the report. And he doesn't say, well, I guess I just pray for him. No, he mourns for them. He cries for them. And this action comes because of a deep burden he has, not only for the people of God, but because of the commitment he has for God. But now I remind you this morning that Nehemiah is not the only person to weep for Jerusalem and its people. Take your Bibles for just a moment. Turn over to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. I want to show you another person who weeped over Jerusalem. Another person who cared about the people of that city. A person who cared enough to do something. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, starting in verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping over the city because of its spiritual 
know that another is going to come and nation is going to level them to the ground again. And he knows what's going to take place. But we also know the bold action that Jesus takes on our behalf. That Jesus would die for our sins. Yet Jesus weeps over the sin. And then we see Nehemiah weeping over the same city centuries earlier. So Nehemiah's response is emotional. But also Nehemiah's response is serious. His response is serious. Because not only is he weeping and he's mourning, Scripture says that he takes a fast. Scripture says during verse 4 that I fasted and prayed before God in heaven. Simply put, you know what fasting is? Fasting is setting aside voluntarily in Jesus' day, in the day of Nehemiah, a meal so you can focus on prayer. Fasting is so much more than putting aside a meal. Listen, there are multiple ways you can go fast. You can fast on social media and not look at it for an extended time. It can be TV. It can be any other things that you're going to fast from. But here's the point. You're taking whatever it is you want to do or like to do and putting it to a side so you can spend that time and be doing whatever it is you like to do in prayer with God. But notice something. It's not a one-and-done thing for Nehemiah because Scripture says that he sat down and mourned for many days. That leads us to another thought that Nehemiah's response is persistent. He didn't just pray once and say, you know what? I'm done. Good luck. No. He stops. He weeps. He mourns. He gets emotional. He realizes the seriousness of the issue. But he's persistent with it. Scripture says days. Over in verse 6, it says he did this for days and nights. We don't know how long. There's an indication later in the next chapter of how long that is. But at the moment, we have no idea. But the fact is, he sees the need. He sees the condition. He sees the seriousness of what's going on. He's persevering in his prayer and his fasting. It's an indication of his deep faith in God. And Scripture only says that he prays and fasts for days. Because he is convinced that only God can answer his prayer. He is so convinced that he'll stop everything else to focus his prayers on the people of Jerusalem, the condition therein, the condition of the city as well, and stop and simply pray. I love this quote by Andrew, Andrew, rather, Andrew Murray talks about persevering prayers. And I put the words on the screen behind you. But listen to what Andrew Murray says. He says, Do, don't delay, don't let delay shake your faith. For it is faith that will provide the answer in time. Each believing prayer is a step nearer to the final victory. It ripens the fruit, conquers hindrances in an unseen world, and hastens the end. Child of God, give the Father time. Can I say that again? Child of God, give the Father time. Don't think, I'm going to pause on this quote. Don't think that you can pray for a week and God's going to handle it. Scripture says pray without what? Ceasing. That means continuously. 
I would challenge you in this as well. In this new year, when you're spending time in prayer, I would encourage you to write down that prayer request is for the right to start with. The day you started praying for that prayer. And then when God answers that prayer according to His will, write the end date. You have no idea how much that will transform your prayer life. I've had prayers, I've seen prayers that God has answered in days. I've seen Him answer them in weeks. And I've seen some that haven't been answered for years. And I still see some that haven't been answered. But that doesn't mean I stop praying. So I love what Andrew Murray says here. Give the Father time. And here's why. He is long-suffering over you. He wants your blessings to be rich, full, and secure. Give Him time, but continue praying day and night. And above all, remember the promise. I say to you, He will avenge this to you. Give the Father time. Nehemiah's faith is a faith that is consuming. It's a persevering faith expressed by an uncertainness of what's happening, an easy and never-ending petition. He prays this prayer and continues to pray this prayer because he knows that God is the only person who can answer the need for the people. And so he responds by falling in prayer. Here's the amazing part. So Nehemiah starts the prayer. We're going to learn next week when we get to chapter 2 that it was four months from the time that Nehemiah started praying before God gave the opportunity to talk to King on his mercies about what the mission was. For four months he prayed without ceasing and mourning for a nation that was experiencing destruction. Give the Father you go to him in prayer. But now I want you to see also the contents of Nehemiah's prayer. Look with me in verses 5 through 7. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those you love, you, and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. That you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. The word here when he says confess, the word confess in its basic meaning means to know. So it carries the idea of acknowledgement. And in this prayer we're going to see that Nehemiah acknowledges who God is and the truth that come from God and the truths about him and the people of Israel. So in this confessional, this prayer, this prayer of confessional, notice the confessional concerning God. He talks about God first. Do you see what he called in scripture? He said, awesome God. Awesome God. 
not a great God, not a fair God, not a cool God, but an awesome God. He's acknowledging that who God is, that God is not only awesome, but God is great, but that God is also faithful in lovingly keeping his commandments to his people, even the sinful people of Israel. So you and I have to have a proper perspective of who God is and his faithfulness and his loving kindness that he shows towards us despite our youngness, despite what we tend to do that goes contrary to who God is. Because once we understand who God is, then we have a knowledge of who God is, we understand God's act of repentance, how God will save his people. So you see in this prayer an intimate knowledge of who God is, and he's also giving us an honest assessment of who he is in the people of Israel. Because if you see what he said there in verse 6, about halfway down, he's talking this prayer, and then he makes the statement that, and confess the sins of the children of Israel that we have sinned. Notice what Nehemiah says. He says, not that they sinned. He said, we have sinned. He puts himself in the same boat with the children of Israel. He says, we have sinned against you. Now you may want to step back and say, Nehemiah, hold on, brother. You're being a little hard on yourself, aren't you? They're the ones that messed up, right? Nehemiah can say, you see where I'm living right now? I'm in Babylon. You know how I got here? Because we messed up. So Nehemiah puts himself in the same basket and says, listen, God, we have sinned against you, my father's house, and I. We have broken your commandments. We have broken your statutes. We have broken your word. And this is the prayer. It's the confessional concerning who God is. And when you and I pray to the Father, it has to be God-centered, not self-centered. Because Nehemiah could have thrown Israel under the bus. God, you see these people. They messed up. They're the ones in trouble. Will you help them out? No, he says, I. He puts himself in the same situation. We have done this thing. I have done this thing. So we see this proper attitude of who God is, but we see this confessional concerning Israel as well. We see that in verses 6 through 7. Because if Nehemiah doesn't have a clear understanding of who God is, how can he pray for himself and the children of Israel? So he has to know who God is, but he has to know who he's praying for. He has to acknowledge that God is faithful, that God keeps his word. Because look at verse 7 again. And notice the sin that he points out to the God in heaven. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. The truth that you gave to your servant Moses we're not keeping. Not only am I not keeping them, but your children, the nation, are not keeping them. But we serve a God who is faithful in his covenant. He is faithful where Israel has been unfaithful. And the condition that the people of God find themselves in is a result of their own sin. And as a fact, 
Israel has become its own enemy. Israel has taken their focus off of God and put it on themselves. So Nehemiah prays this prayer because he knows that Israel has put himself in this condition. He puts himself in that same condition, but he acknowledges that God is in control because Nehemiah knows God's word. How do we know this? You don't have to turn here, but look at the references behind on the screen this morning. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Nehemiah knows he is addressing a compassionate God, a God who cares for his people, a people who choose to turn their back on him. Of people who choose to stop listening. Of people who choose to do their own thing, thinking they're going to prosper and everything's going to be a-okay. So Nehemiah cries out to a God who is awesome. A God who will hear his prayers. And a God who will answer those prayers according to God's will, not Nehemiah's coming. But something else I want you to see this morning is that Nehemiah's prayer is founded on God's promises. Think about the hymn. I'm standing on the what? Promises of who? God. I'm standing on the promises of God. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments, and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as my as a dwelling for my name. Man, there's a whole lot of unpack right here, so hang on to Notice what God says here. Notice what Nehemiah says God will do. He says, Yes, you've scattered them all over. But I will bring them back. Did you catch that in the verse there, verse 9? I will bring them back to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God chooses the place for his people. A dwelling place for his name. Turn with me for just a moment over to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12 talks about the connection between Israel and the place where to worship God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 and 11. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5 says this, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put His name for His dwelling place, and there you shall go. Drop down to verse 11. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Then you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, and all of your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And then turn over for just a second over to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16.
Nehemiah 16, verse 2. Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd and the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. Verse 6. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses, make his name abide there. You shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And jump down to verse 11. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son, and your daughter, your male servant, and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Nehemiah was not concerned about the economic situation in Jerusalem. He didn't care if they were making money. He cared about the place where they were going to be worshiping God. He cared about that more than anything else. He cared that those people would exalt God and serve God. Nehemiah prays that Jerusalem would once more become the place that God chooses His name to dwell. As I read through these verses in Deuteronomy, I am reminded of this. Our predecessors thought they picked this place to worship, but do you know who ultimately picked this spot for us to worship? God. So we make His name great because this is the place where His name is. But in order for that to happen, our hearts have to be in tune with God. And our lives have to be in tune with God. We have to trust Him in the good times and trust Him in the hard times. Nehemiah's concern was where the people were going to be worshiping because he knew then and only then the place where they worship would be founded on the promises of God. And that's the reminder for me and for you. Again, he didn't care about making money. He cared about where they're worshiping God. But he also prayed this. Nehemiah's prayer, his prayer is based on the identity of Israel as the people of God. Look at verse 10 of Nehemiah chapter 1. Now these are your servants and your people who you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah understands that both he and his people were called to be servants of God. Eight times in this prayer, the word servant appears. There's a catch, there's a key, there's a thing. He's referring to himself as God's servant. He refers to Moses as God's servant. And he refers to the people of Israel as God's servant. Scripture tells us that when the law was given to Israel by Moses, this understanding was made clear. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 55 says this, For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I truly believe as Nehemiah is praying this prayer, he's remembering the words of the prophets. He's remembering the words of those who have come before, talking about the place where they would gather his people from exile and bring them back again to the fold. Over in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 10, Scripture says this, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, 
nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, and have rest, and be quiet. And no one shall be made, no one shall make him afraid. Nehemiah's emphasis in this part of the prayer is on the identity of the children of Israel being submissive to God to be his servants. Israel's existence to God and the covenant centers on serving the Father. They were chosen to be his servants. You and I who are a child of God are his servants. And you and I should have that same purpose. When I said yes to God, it wasn't so I could sit and take up space. I said yes to God so I could serve Him. And when I said yes to God all those years ago, I had no idea where God was going to place me. But I said yes. And I had to pray and I had to wait. But it's about saying yes to Him. Too many times we're more concerned about making sure people get into heaven and less about how we can plug people into serving him, serving him while they're here. Yes, we get excited when people say yes to Jesus. We get excited when they go through the waters of baptism. But listen, I get excited as a pastor when someone says, hey, can I take over this ministry? Yes, you can. Because God has put that in their heart. Those are, what, those are the people God is called to be. I used to say all the time, God did not call me to be a bitch warmer. I played sports. I was horrible. I was, I was bad. In basketball, I fouled in the first 10 seconds, five times. I played varsity baseball. I made the varsity team because they were desperate. You're laughing, but it's true. I was horrible. But I remember being on the team, and I hated sitting on the team. I've got this uniform. I want to play. Even if I don't do anything right, I want to play. As a child of God, that's in your same attitude. All right, if you should be, listen, I got a cool uniform. I don't want to get it dirty. My attitude should be, man, God, how much more can I get dirty? Nehemiah is ready to get dirty. So he cries out in this prayer. He speaks to a holy father. And he knows that it is against our nature to be submissive. It's against our nature to say, yes, God, you're in control. But that's what he's praying for. Again, verse 10, we see these words. Your servants and your people, you redeem. Listen, they're yours. You've redeemed them. Let us get to work. Because the other part of this prayer in verse 10, Nehemiah's prayer recalls God's work of redemption on behalf of Israel. God's going to redeem his people. It's not going to happen quickly. But he's going to redeem his people. Nehemiah recognizes that Israel, redeemer, is God the Father. That only God can redeem them. God can, only, God can bring them back into a right relationship with them. Again, I'm putting the references on the screen behind me. But we read from the book of Psalms. The cries of the Lord to redeem his people. Their cries for deliverance against a threat, against a burden. Psalm 26, 11. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful 
to me. Psalm 69, verse 18. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. Psalm 119, 134. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. These are cries to a holy God because of the situation that people find themselves in. They're saying, Father, protect me. Father, guide me. Father, walk with me. Deliver me from what I'm dealing with. But there are other songs where we see the confidence and the trust of God's readiness to rescue His people. Psalm 31 5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 55 18. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. And I love Psalm 71, verse 23. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you in my soul, which you have redeemed. I will sing to you because you have redeemed me. Listen, when we're singing, we're singing because we know the finished work God has done through Jesus Christ. Listen, there is never a reason not to sing in worship. And can I say this? God doesn't care how you sing. He just cares that you sing. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite pastors to read his works. A.W. Tozer talked about the fact that he had hymnals in his office, John And he said he would close the door. And he'd sing as loud as he could sing. He knew he was terrible too. But this is what A.W. Tozer said. He said as he sang for these hymn books, he didn't care what people thought. Because as far as God was concerned, he was not the same. And as far as God's concerned, the most beautiful voice he hears is not a voice that he's hearing, but a voice that is singing genuine praise for the Father who's redeeming. You and I are redeemed as we sing the song of faith. The song we know, the song we're learning. We sing them with boldness because of what this verse says. My lips shall break and rejoice when I sing to you in my soul, which you have redeemed. Because I said yes to you when you let your son die for my sins. That is the reminder for us that Nehemiah had the confidence in God that in his present situation, he had the assurance that God would be Israel's redeemer. But Nehemiah also knows this, that his prayer is shared by others. Nehemiah is not alone. Now, if you read this, we think, you know what, this poor man by himself, he's serving the king. He's got no one else, but notice what it says in verse 11. Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants, catch that, who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And grant him mercy to the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah recognized that there are others who are faithfully praying for the restoration of Jerusalem. He realizes the importance 
of ministering in the context of community within the body of believers. He knows he cannot do it by himself. He cannot do what he needs to do by himself. He knows that others need to pray the same prayer. Did you catch that in verse 11? He says, your servant, and then the prayers of your servants. Others are praying. In Nehemiah, who studied through this book, one of the things he's going to highlight is the importance of God's people working together. You're going to see that as we go through this study. We're also going to be reminded of the number of times in the scripture, both old and new, the importance of the community of faith in prayer and service. See, too many times we underestimate the power of corporate prayer. God does amazing things when the body of Christ is praying for the same thing. Yes, do you hear the prayers of individuals? Yes. But he also hears the prayers of the collective group as well. As we join our hearts to pray for the same concerns, that should encourage us, that should inspire us, that should unite us as God's people. Last point. Nehemiah's prayer reveals his faith in God his submission to God and his dependence on God to give him success as God's servant. We hear this beautiful prayer from Nehemiah. Nehemiah prays truth. He prays in confidence. He prays in the assurance that God will do what he says. But then you get to the last part of verse 11. It's kind of a catch. He says in the last part of verse 11, for I was the king's cupbearer. What Nehemiah is telling me and you is he has a huge obstacle in front of him. He serves the Persian king known as Artaxerxes. And he serves as the king's cupbearer. Now a cupbearer is more than just a butler. The cupbearer's responsibility was to taste and drink anything before the king tasted or drank it himself. But the cupbearer was so much more important than that. The cupbearer, according to tradition, had to be handsome and intelligent because the king would see him as a confidant. The king would see him as someone he would talk to and get advice from. And God had placed Nehemiah in a position of importance. And God had placed Nehemiah in a position for such a confidence in Because notice what Nehemiah says in the end of his prayer. Sometimes we kind of gloss over it as we're reading through it. He says in the latter part of the prayer, he says, Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is King Artaxerxes. In his position as cupbearer, Nehemiah has had the opportunity to be a person of influence or be a person of evil. And he knows that when he goes, it's all going to be about strategy. He has to pick the right time. Because God's already moving in his heart for the people of Jerusalem. This is just one more time in a grander scale. We see God working in the life of a particular individual in a specific situation. Because even though Nehemiah served a Persian king, he is first and foremost a servant of God. That's his first priority. Yes, he served a foreign king, but God is first. 
So we see this prayer that is born out of intense love for God and his people. We see a prayer that's persevering through the fast of day and night. We see a prayer that acknowledges and appeals to a great and merciful God who is gracious and made himself known to Israel through his covenant. He recognizes that God is faithful to his promise both to discipline his people because of their sin, but also to restore his people who repent of their sin and return them as their redeemer. Nehemiah prays with confidence, knowing that God will hear his prayer because his prayer is founded on the promises of God. And he understands that God's chosen people are to be God's servant and they're to be humble in spirit and have a sense of purpose as they pray and as they serve. And Nehemiah identifies with the people of God and knows he is not alone in his desire to see God restore Jerusalem. This morning, God is still looking for people like Nehemiah who care enough to ask the facts, who care enough to weep over the need, who care enough to pray for God's help, and who care enough to volunteer to get the job done. Isaiah 6, 8 simply says, Hear my send me. The question this morning, we close our time together. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? When's the last time you said, God, here am I, send me? Better yet, what would it take for you to do that today? What would it take for you today to pray that prayer? Here am I, send me. Every head down and every eye closed. This morning, we get introduced to a man who prays. A man whose name literally means Yahweh comforts. We read about a man who is in tears because of the condition of a city and its walls and the people. And we learn about this man through his prayer. A prayer that is bathed in the confidence of who God is and that God keeps his word and that God will not fail. Did Nehemiah have all the answers? No. And started with prayer. And he echoes those words from Isaiah 6, Jeremiah Sinai. This morning we started this message time with the question, what is the level of your care? Let's make it personal. How much do you care for the people who are sitting around you this morning? How much do you care for the people who are not sitting around you? How much do you care for our community? When was the last time you went? Because you knew God would do great things with the people to be son. This morning, we read the prayers of a man who's part of the birthday. This morning, the prayers that God is speaking.
this morning and every Sunday morning, I will never make this Sunday morning like this morning. That's wrong on my part. This morning, when you may not know Jesus, you may be stirring your heart this morning. Give me a desire to hear my sin me. For others, you know who Jesus is. You have a relationship with him. But you've had this mindset of, oh, I guess we can pray about it. And never been intentional with the prayer. Never been intentional with confessing where we as individuals fall short of the Lord God. For some of this morning, maybe not be a part of this fellowship in church movement. Whatever it is, my prayer is that you would listen and let God speak to you. That when He says, I need you, that you should answer that call. Here am I sending you. Father, as we move to a time of response, a time of invitation, the prayer is simply this. Your will be done. Father, you don't call us to beg people. But Father, you call us to share the good news with you. And Father, our prayers that we have a heart like me and mine to see the condition of the walls, spiritually speaking, and we in the morning. We pray not just once, but continuously without ceasing. Father, this morning, as we stand and sing in just a moment, the reminder is simply this. I can't say, here am I sending me until I surrender all to you. Until I can do everything that I'm keeping from you. Everything that I'm holding back. Because Father, once I let go of those things, I can truly pray that prayer that you would use me how you see fit. And Father, you would use me in a way to serve you and your own. So Father, as we move into this time, again, speak to the heart of your name. Father, most importantly, your will be done. I pray all this for your son's name.